So in every societal organization, there are a set of rules. And just like any societal organization, every religion has a set of rules, laws, commandments, precepts for how to live your life. And it is true of every human being in every societal organization, including religion, is that we break the rules. And so the question that every religion tries to answer is, is this question, what do we do now that we have broken the rules? And so the Christian answer to this dilemma is, oh, Jesus. Jesus is the solution to this dilemma. Jesus came to forgive us of our rule-breaking patterns and habits through his life, death, and his resurrection. But, but not only that, Jesus also came to change the rules, through his death and resurrection, Jesus changed the rule of death because up until Jesus, death was final. It brought an end to life. It brought an end to love. It brought an end to relationships. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he broke that rule of death. Jesus also came to change the rules about who our neighbor is. He came to change the rule about how we ought to treat our enemies and Jesus took all of the rules, all of the commandments, all of the footnotes, all of the bylaws and simplified them down to this one. Love God and love people. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Later on, one of Jesus's followers would, would write this when he said, love covers a multitude of sins. And so one day, over 2,000 years ago, over a hundred followers of Jesus flooded the streets of Jerusalem with that message. And 3,000 people heard and accepted that message and were baptized. A couple weeks later, another 2,000 people heard that message, accepted it, and were baptized. And that's where we're going to pick up in our story today. That over the past couple of weeks, we have been looking at the story of the early church from the book of Acts, which tells us about this early Jesus movement, these early Jesus communities. And Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, tells us that over 5,000 men have now become followers of Jesus. And, and that's just the men. That's, that's not including the thousands of, of women and children. And so now get this, about 10% of the entire population of Jerusalem have now become followers of Jesus. The, the, this thing is, is not just a flash in a pan, but, but this, is a, this is a movement. It's here to stay and it's gaining momentum now. You see, the church, the church didn't begin as an institution, it didn't begin with any buildings or a hierarchy. The church began as a movement that was rallied around a name. That name was Jesus. And this movement began to gain traction because of the message that they had as they stood in the streets of Jerusalem and they said, just down the street, over the wall, up on that hill, Jesus was crucified. He died and he rose again. Now, that 
was a powerful and an offensive message. And so what you need to understand about the socio-political backdrop that this early Jesus movement was born into is that in the first century of Jerusalem, there was this very delicate balance of power between the leaders of the Jewish temple and the Roman government. You see, the Roman government, they wanted to keep peace at all costs within all of their cities. And so they said to the Jewish leaders of the temple, they said, look, you can keep your religion, you can keep your temple, you can keep your gods. We don't really care about any of that stuff, but you have to promise to keep the peace. And if you get out of line, if you disrupt our peace, then we will make sure that you have no peace. And so one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why Jesus was killed was because of this social contract between Rome and the temple authorities. That Jesus was, he was just getting too popular. He, he, was, he was seen as a threat. He was changing too much too fast. He was beginning an uprising. And so he had to be silenced. But the thing is that, is that not even death could silence Jesus. And in fact, it was because of his death that his voice grew throughout the early Christians. And it began to expand and this movement continued to grow and to grow and to grow. And so in an effort to keep peace within the city and to keep control of religion and to keep control of the people in Jerusalem, The religious leaders had Peter and John, two of the key apostles of the early church, arrested, thrown in prison, and they warned them never to speak of this name of Jesus again. Quit your teaching, quit your speaking in the city streets about this Jesus person. And what we learned last week was that, in fact, they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop speaking about Jesus. In fact, the first prayer of the first church was that they would be more bold, that they would speak the name of Jesus even louder and share this good news with with even more people. They went back into the streets after having been arrested and they continued to preach. They continued to speak of this good news. They were breaking the rules of of these men, but obeying God's call on their life. And so word gets out now outside of the city of Jerusalem, that there is, there is something that is going on. There are these people there that have perhaps the power to heal. And so hundreds of people from outside of the city of Jerusalem begin to bring the sick and the blind and the cripple to these people in Jerusalem because they've heard just rumors that they can lay their hands on people and heal them because Jesus has given them the power to heal. And so now even more tension is building, even more pressure is being pushed against the church and this delicate ecosystem between the Jewish authorities and the Roman government is being strained by this new Jesus movement. And that's where our story picks up. This is Acts chapter five and we're gonna begin in verse 17. Look at what it says here. This is just great. It says, The high priest, together with his allies, the Sadducees, was overcome with jealousy. (laughs) That they they were jealous. These are the people who are at the top of the religious hierarchy. 
and they're jealous. Why are they jealous? They're jealous because people aren't showing up to the temple anymore. They're showing up in a public park, Solomon's porch, to listen to these uneducated and inexperienced fishermen and sinners to hear about this good news. And all of the religious professionals, all all of the lawyers, they're all upset because nobody is sitting in their pews any longer. But instead, people are out in the streets and people are getting healed. Now the entire first century religious system was beginning to change. And who held the power now began to shift from those who are on top to those who are on the ground. And whenever there is change, somebody always gets jealous. You see, jealousy is, is when you worry that something, that somebody will take something from you that you already have. And so you've probably experienced this before. I I know I have, that when a new idea is floated by, there's a new proposal, there's a new way, a new method of doing things, and you oppose it. Not necessarily because it's just new and different, maybe not even because you think that it's a bad idea, but you oppose it because, well, you're jealous. What what was wrong with the way that, that I was doing things before, why do we have to try this, this new thing? Why do we have to go in a new way? But beyond just petty jealousy, these rulers, these authorities are going for something far deeper. Look at what happens next. This is verse 18. It says, they seized the apostles and made a public show of putting them in prison. Now they've arrested all the apostles, all, all 12 of them, not just Peter and John anymore, but now everyone who is a part of Jesus's inner circle. And it's an attempt to threaten them. They, they throw them in jail for the night. And then the next morning, they're going to bring them out and they're going to try to scare the Jesus out of these troublemakers. You see, bold obedience usually triggers opposition. These people were boldly obeying God and they were arrested for a second time and it wouldn't be the last. Bold obedience usually triggers opposition. Now we typically think that that if we are obeying God, then then things are just going to work out for us and, and everything will be fine. But opposition... Opposition is often confirmation that we are following God's will. That that if you're moving forward with God, then the powers and the principalities of this world will not like it and will try to stop it. Bold obedience usually calls forth some uh, opposition. And so if, if you're not ready if you're not ready to face opposition in your obedience to God, then maybe you're not ready to be used by God. And so look what happens next as these Jesus followers continued, relentlessly continued to be obedient to God. Look at what happens next. This is the best part of the whole story. Verse 19, an angel from the Lord opened the prison doors during the night and led them out. There's not even an exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. It, it just wasn't that big of a deal. An angel of the Lord came into the prison, opened up the doors, led them out. 
The angel told them, go take your place in the temple and tell the people everything about this new life. <laughs> I love that new life. That's, that's what this is all about. Tell everyone about this new life that you have found through Jesus. Peter, Peter, remember who you were before you met Jesus and, and who you are now? Go tell people about that new life. John, you remember? Matthew, remember you, you were a tax collector before you met Jesus? Remember the life that you were living and the life that you have now? Go tell people about that. Mary, James, Martha, all, all of you, go, go tell people about this new life that you have found. Go back out there and do exactly what you were doing that got you landed here in this place. Now, if, if I were them, I would probably want some, some guarantee from this angel that, that he or, or she would, would be there to show back up in my prison cell once I got arrested a second time. Or, or at least I would want some, some bail money to get myself out. But, you know, obedience, obedience is our responsibility. The outcome is God. Obedience is, is our responsibility. The outcome, the consequences, what, what happens after our obedience, that's, that's God's responsibility. All God asks us to do is to go. And so these early apostles, they, they go. They go out of the jail into the streets. And then the next morning, the temple guards go into the prison to get these apostles out of the jail, bring them before the council and try them before everyone but there's no one there. The doors are locked. There are guards still standing outside of the cell, but there's no one in the prison cell anymore. It's empty. They find out the, the apostles had somehow miraculously gotten out of prison and they were in the streets of Jerusalem continuing to teach and preach in Jesus's name. And so the authorities of the temple tell the guards to go out and arrest these men. But they're afraid to do so because now such a large crowd has gathered around them to hear this teaching, to hear more about this name of Jesus, that the guards are afraid to arrest them because they're afraid that a riot is going to break out. They're afraid that they will be stoned to death. And so they kind of kindly ask the apostles to arrest themselves and, and to turn themselves in. And so they do. It goes on. Skip down to verse 27. It says this. It says the apostles were brought before the council where the high priest confronted them. In no uncertain terms, we demand that you not teach in this name. They don't even want to say the name Jesus. Instead, it's like a he who shall not be named because the name Jesus, the name itself is disruptive, that there is this, this power in this name. We demand that you not teach in this name and look at you, they say. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I love that line. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What would it look like for us to fill our cities, our communities with the teaching of the way of life of Jesus Christ? They say, and you are determined to hold us responsible for this man's death. Sounds like you're guilty. 
Peter says, you know, you know, the reason why it sounds like you're guilty. Well, it's because you are. <laughs> he says, you crucified this Jesus. You, you hung him on a tree. It sounds like you're guilty because, because you are. And then Peter goes on and he preaches this like little mini sermon. Let's skip down to verse 33. And, and this part, this part is, is so important. And, and it seems like this long dialogue that, that we don't really know some of these names. We don't know the history behind this and, and we can just gloss over it. But, but this part is so important. What happens next? Don't miss this. Verse 33. When the council members heard this, they became furious and wanted to kill the apostles. One council member, a Pharisee and teacher of the law named Gamaliel, well respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be taken outside for a few moments. Just step outside for a few moments while we render your verdict. He said, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you intend to do to these people. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and some 400 men joined him. After he was killed, all of his followers scattered, and nothing came of that. Now, this is why it's important. We, we don't know a whole lot about Thutis, but apparently he stirred up a group of people, gathered some 400 followers. Rome took notice of this. Rome said, no, nah, that doesn't sound like, like it's going to work out, and they squashed him like a bug. They killed him. It says this, verse 37, Gamaliel goes on. He says, afterward, at the time of the census, he's talking about the Syrian census, Judas, the Galilean, appeared and got some people to follow him in a revolt. He was killed too, and all of his followers scattered far and wide. And so there was a time where the governor of Syria wanted to have a census taken of all of the people in this area so that he could raise taxes. And in order to do that, you have to find out how many people live in this area, how many people have moved to the area, and how much money each person makes so that you can tax them to the highest degree. But Judas the Galilean didn't like this idea, and they said they weren't going to participate in this, uh, in this census. And so they started a movement that would be called the Zealots. You may have heard of that term zealot before. In fact, one of Jesus' followers was a zealot. But Judas, the Galilean, was killed. He, he started a, mov a movement. Rome took notice, and Rome, Rome said, nope. And they killed him and squashed him like a bug as well. And when he died, the movement died. Now, this is what Gamaliel says next. He says that he has an idea about what to do with these Jesus followers. It says, verse 38, here's my recommendation. Here's my recommendation in this case. Distance yourselves from these men. Let them go. Let, let Rome just take care of this. Just like Rome took care of Thutis and Judas, we, we don't need to get involved. Let's just allow Rome to, to kind of take over and, and do our dirty business for us. He says, if their plan or activity is of human origin, it will end in ruin. If, if their purpose is of human origin, then, then it's going to fail. Just like Thutis and Judas, their, their movement failed. Just like any other human movement or uprising, they don't stand a chance against the sword of Rome. But, this is where it gets really interesting. But, 
if it originates with God, you won't be able to stop them. Instead, you would actually find yourselves fighting God. You will only find yourselves fighting God. He says that the only thing that's powerful enough to to overcome the Roman Empire, to overcome Rome, the only thing that's possibly powerful enough is, is God. Now, did you know the place that has the most Christian symbols in the entire world today is Rome. I mean, what, what ironic foreshadowing of a statement that was 2,000 years old. Story goes on. It says the council was convinced by his reasoning. After calling the apostles back, they had them beaten, flogged, They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, then let them go. The apostles left the council rejoicing because they had been regarded as worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of the name. That that for several hours, the apostles stood in line waiting for their turn to be flogged, to have their bodies permanently scarred by these whips with pieces of metal and stone attached to them, tearing through their backs, all because they were talking about something that they had seen with their own eyes. It wasn't just a belief for them. This is something that they had seen and they had to share what they had seen. They were beaten, flogged, and then they left rejoicing. They were permanently disfigured and scarred so that when people saw them in the streets, saw the scars that they had, they would assume that they were a criminal in some sort of way. And they rejoiced in that. They said, Jesus gave up his life for me. I will give up the flesh on my back for him. Jesus gave up his life for me. I will give up my reputation for him. It's powerful. And so this is how the story wraps up. And and I'll wrap up with this. This is verse 42. This is how it ends. It says, every day they continued to teach and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ, both in the temple and in houses. You see, they, they, they don't go to another city. They, they kept preaching and teaching about the name of Jesus right there in the same city, in the temple. I mean, wow. Wow, what, what, do, what do you do with that? And the question I ask myself is, is where did that kind of faith go? That, that you would be arrested, beaten, And then go back out, do the same thing all over again, and risk it all over again. And as I I look at the church here in America, I I ask, you know, what what happened? What happened to the church? And I just just want us to sit with this story for, for just a moment. That don't let this be just another ancient Bible story that you go, wow, how how cool was that? Now what's for lunch? What, wow, how, how inspiring for them to do that. What else is on TV? You see, this isn't just a story. This is our story. This is our history. This is, this is your story. We are this church. 
And we have been handed the church in our generation, for our generation, and one day we will no longer be around and we will hand off the church to the next generation and it will be in the same condition that we have left it in. We're the church. We, we are here to make our communities, to make our cities more just and hopeful and loving. And just like these early followers of Jesus, you have no idea what God can set into motion through a single act of obedience to God. You, you have no idea of the new life that can be found through a single act of obedience to God. And I know, look, I, I know a story like this one, to be honest, it, it just seems so irrelevant, so, so distant from our lives today, especially if, if you're a Christian living in America. I mean, we're not jailed for our faith. I mean, maybe the worst that happens is people find out we're a Christian and, and somebody gets a little uncomfortable or, or a little annoyed with us, but, but we're not in the same boat as these early Christians who, who risked their lives. And so if I could just give you and, and me uh, just, just a baby step towards boldness, it, it would be this, and I think it's the same step that these early followers of Jesus had. This, this baby step towards boldness is, is this. Say something when it would be easier to say nothing. Say something when it would be easier to say nothing. That, that's what boldness looks like in our culture. Say something when it would be easier to say nothing. When someone or someones are, are put down, dehumanized, devalued, diminished. Say something when it would be easier to say nothing about the new life that, that you have found in Jesus. Tell people about that new life. Tell, tell your story. You don't have to tell the whole story of, of all of the Bible and, and all of the church, but just tell, tell your story. How have you found new life? It doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to be planned, but it's yours. What I'm asking you and, and me to do is to leave our marks on the Christian story, to, to leave our marks on the story of the church, the story of this Jesus movement, because the church is a movement. It, it's not about a building. Church isn't something that you go to. Church is, is something that you are, and you are part of that movement, go boldly and continue it. Let me pray for you. Oh God, you have called us into something so great and so powerful. We're just humbled to be a part of this story alongside people like Peter and, and John and Mary God, modern day, people who just inspire us because of their faith and their boldness and their courage. Lord, help us to find our place in that story, in this story that we are living today. And with boldness, may we continue your movement that you have set in place for the hope 
of the world. We pray this in that powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.